and then I got this notification on my phone <laughs> and it said something along the lines of fetal demise and that just felt <laughs> so cruel you know with a lot of New York I'm sure it's this way everywhere but you have a patient portal and you'll get notifications from that patient portal whenever new tests arrive or a new diagnosis arrives and yeah that's that's kind of how it became most real to me as I saw that notification. Welcome back to a fresh story. This episode is part of a special series for October as it is Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. We are honored to hold space for these profound conversations and share these stories. These stories may be of grief, but they are also of hope, resilience, and most of all, unconditional love. As a reminder, be gentle with your heart. And if you are not able to listen to this episode at the moment, we understand and we're holding you close. These conversations will change you as they have changed us. I'll let these amazing women tell you in their own words. Ashley Spivey is like the older sister that you always wanted and never knew how much you needed until you meet her, and then you wonder how you ever lived without her. Ashley is one of those rare gems of humans who is an actual angel on earth. She spends her time on the internet helping people, educating people, and making sure that everyone feels supported, heard, and validated. I've been following Ashley for years as she has wonderful book recommendations, and I remember how excited I was for her when she announced that she was pregnant. And then, months later, Ashley shared that her son CJ had been stillborn on November 26, 2020. My heart just dropped when I heard the news. In true form, Ashley shared her experience of losing CJ with honesty, authenticity, integrity, and a reverence for her grief and unconditional love for her son. When I think of Ashley, I think of the quote, maybe you've been assigned this mountain to show others it can be moved. And Ashley has dedicated her life to honoring CJ by changing the world in major ways, including working on bills to change policy for bereavement leave for parents and education support on stillbirth. I talked to Ashley about what it was like to leave the hospital without her son, the impact of social media and processing her grief, pregnancy after loss, and how she connects with CJ every day. I'll let Ashley explain a little more. Yeah, um, I think everything kind of starts with my husband and I deciding, you know, we're finally ready for kids. Um, I had been a nanny for years. Um, and so, you know, raising kids is not something I take lightly. Um, and when we decided we were ready, uh, I actually got pregnant pretty quickly. Um, I had had an IUD for forever. Uh, we pulled it and I got pregnant really quickly. However, um, I had a miscarriage after six weeks. And then after that, uh, I was diagnosed with unexplained infertility because we tried and we tried and we tried and it just wasn't happening for us. Um, we 
turn to doing IUIs. Uh, we did an unmedicated one. It didn't work. We did a medicated one and it actually got canceled because COVID. They stopped all non-essential medical treatments in New York. Um, so my IUI at that time was canceled. And at this point, we just felt very distraught, depressed, like we needed to take a break. Everything was awful. Um, so that happened in, I think, March of 2020. And then I just wanted to give my body a break. In June, uh, I was feeling really depressed. I couldn't even finish a cup of coffee. Like That's how depressed I felt. Just everything that usually brought me joy was just not hitting. <laughs> I was in New York during the pandemic. All of my friends left New York. It was just me and Steve and our dog. Uh, we had one friend who would who we trusted enough to like keep us safe that would come and watch a movie with us on Fridays. Like it was the loneliest time in our life. Um, but my sister was a flight attendant at that time. And so she flew into New York a lot. And so she flew into New York and I was telling her, I was just like, you know, Kitty, I'm just I'm so depressed. I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't even finish this coffee. And she was like, wait, have you taken a pregnancy test? So I took a pregnancy test and I was pregnant and I consider myself like <laughs> an educated person, someone who would like look out for these signs. And I just thought it wasn't going to happen for me. I was two months pregnant when I found out that I was pregnant with CJ. <laughs> I just, you know, I just thought it wouldn't happen. And we had decided that we were really going to pause trying for kids and whatever. It was, it was just the darkest time. And then to get this news was so joyous, which felt weird, right? In New York amongst like all this death and loneliness. Um, but uh, around the time we discovered about CJ, his due date would be around my dad's birthday. And I lost my dad when I was 24 and his death, you know, had such a big impact on me. And we just kind of felt like, wow, this is like a sign from him. So we decided that we would name CJ after my dad. Um, my dad's name was Christopher. We would name him Christopher James. Um, and the pregnancy was amazing. Like, I, I didn't think I would be someone who would like romanticize pregnancy or like, um, feel as great as I did, but it really was a perfect pregnancy and I never felt bad <laughs> besides the not being able to drink coffee in the beginning. Um, but it was, it was uneventful. I mean, despite being, um, a geriatric pregnancy, uh, nothing really ever went wrong. Um, I loved my doctor. I was with, um, Will Cornell down here. I could like walk to my doctor. She was amazing. And then at 31 weeks, I went in for a very routine appointment. You know, when you get that late in your pregnancy at practices, you'll usually start rotating to see other doctors just in case, you know, your doctor's not available whenever it's time for you to deliver. And so I was with a different doctor that day and I wasn't scheduled for an ultrasound. I was just scheduled for them to listen to the heartbeat. 
so she just mentioned like a couple of things to me. And one of them was you should feel him kick 10 times in an hour. And that was the first time anyone had ever said anything like that to me. And I thought about it and I was like, you know, I, I don't think I felt him move that much this morning, but he is, he, he has less activity in the morning anyway. Like we always said he was a night owl because I would feel him a lot more at night. I mentioned that to her, which by the way, 10 kicks an hour is outdated advice, by the way. Like if you hear your doctor say that, that should be a red flag. Um, but she said to me, she was like, Let's listen to the heartbeat as long as the heartbeat is fine. You know, you're good. So we listened to his heartbeat. His heartbeat was strong. She sent me on my way. That was another mistake by her. The heartbeat is the last thing to go when something is wrong with your baby. So that was two strikes against her. <laughs> A strike against me for not being educated on fetal movement and what I should have been looking for. She should have sent me for monitoring immediately when I mentioned that CJ wasn't moving that much this morning. I don't know what would have happened. I believe that if she would have sent me for monitoring, he could have been saved. Like, we know that a fourth of stillbirths with conservative estimates can be saved. But, you know, I went home. I walked my dog. The next day was Thanksgiving, so I was doing a lot of um, different activities that day to get ready, and something still just fell off. So I called my doctor. My doctor told me to come into the hospital. She was like, just do an ultrasound. Like, what's the worst that can happen? You know, you, just that you find out he's fine. I don't want you being worried on Thanksgiving. I, I, I didn't feel him moving. <laughs> You know, and while he was less active during the day, um, this really started to scare me. You know, it's just, it's never something that entered my mind that I had gotten that far that something could happen now. Like we all think, oh, you make it to 12 weeks, you're in the safe zone. I thought I was in the safe zone. I always like, I, I like blame myself because I wondered if like, there was something maternal I was missing, you know, like if there was something I was supposed to know that I missed. But now I know, like, my doctor should have mentioned that to me at 26 weeks, 27 weeks. This is something I should have established a pattern for him and I should have been paying attention to it. I thought that I was like, knowing that he moved less in the morning, he moved more at night. Um... I, of course, learned how to do it properly later, <laughs> but I was so convinced that everything was fine that um, when my doctor told me to go in, <laughs> I told Steve I was going in and he was like, what? You're, you're crazy. You're just, <laughs> you're being way too worried. And I was like, you're an asshole. I'm just going to go to the, the hospital by myself. So I did. I literally walked there by myself at the hospital is very close to so our apartment. It's about a 15-minute walk. I walk there. I call my mom. I tell her. I'm like, hey, I'm just going to make sure CJ's fine. Go into the hospital. They do an ultrasound. And when they pull up the image, they did not have to tell me anything. You could not see a heartbeat. His head was in a weird 
I don't know. Just they didn't have to say anything to me because they could they kept on moving uh the little wand or whatever. Yeah, the Doppler. Um could not find his heartbeat. They brought in another doctor. Um, finally, I asked them to just please turn the screen off because I just couldn't look at it. Um, and yeah, I don't, you know, I don't even ever think they told me that he died. Like no one ever said those words to me, even though I knew that's what happened. And I called, I called Steve and I told him to come and I called my mom and I told her. And then I got this notification on my phone and it said something along the lines of fetal demise. And that just felt so cruel, you know, with a lot of New York, I'm sure it's this way everywhere, but you have a patient portal and you'll get notifications from that patient portal whenever new tests arrive or a new diagnosis arrives. And yeah, that's, that's kind of how it became most real to me as I saw that notification and I was on a floor where I could hear babies crying and it just felt extra cruel. Yeah, so they admitted me right away. They brought me into a suite where I wouldn't have to hear women in labor. Um, and, you know, pretty quickly they come in and they tell you, we're going to go ahead and induce you. I went ahead and got an epidural around midnight um, and started the induction process. It was terrifying because I, this happened on Wednesday, that Friday, I was going to have a meeting with my doula and we were going to talk about, you know, the birthing process. So I was completely unprepared for what was about to happen and just terrified. My doula offered to come, but like I said, this was during the height of COVID and we just didn't know, like, we didn't want to be around other people, really. So we turned down her offer um, for her to come. And, yeah, the induction happened around midnight. Um, I started to push around 4 p.m. the next day. So it was pretty long um, active labor. <laughs> and, um, you know, just... I hope this like isn't too graphic, but sometimes I think it's important to talk about. <laughs> okay. Um, because I really want, I think whenever people hear stillbirth, they don't realize that people are still giving birth to the babies. I think that like your mind just doesn't go there because it's just too dark of a place. But I thought in my head that something was going to be so wrong with him that I didn't want to see him. So I kind of had told Steve that before. I was like, you know, I just don't know if I want to see him because if something is really wrong, it's just going to destroy me forever. Um, and I had already had like very complicated feelings even about giving birth um, vaginally. I begged the doctors to let me do a C-section and they told me that I couldn't because you know, maybe I would have another child after this and I would want to do a vaginal birth. Um, so that that option was kind of forced upon me. And 
I just really thought like my body was not going to survive that. And it made me have suicidal thoughts. Like I just, it felt like at that time I had no control over my body and what was about to happen to it. And I really didn't think I was going to survive it. It's so upsetting to me. And by the way, not that I want people to have this information in case it ever happens to you, because I don't want you to think it's going to happen to you. But at the same time, yes, at the same time, if a doctor tells you that, they are wrong. (laughs) You know, you absolutely do have options. And if you want to have a C-section, you can. And that is why I do want to tell my story so that hopefully people will remember it. And if it does happen to them, those same mistakes don't happen. Delivering him right? Like, I think we all grow up with this perfect birth scenario where, you know, you push and you push and you push and then the baby's born and everyone's so happy and you feel this relief and you hear the cry. And, you know, CJ was born into a room of, like, complete silence. Like, no one congratulated me. No one was happy. Everyone was crying. And it was almost like I could pretend at that point that, like, the doctors were wrong, right? Even Steve says, like, he he kept up hope until CJ came out that the doctors were wrong and that CJ was going to be alive and this was all just, like, a really cruel joke. And when he did come out, it was still easy to pretend that he was alive because his eyes were open And his body was warm and he was perfect. And we decided that we wanted to keep him in the room with us um, for as long as we could. So we did. Um, They prepared a bed for him. And I thought that this part was really cruel. And I, I just still can't even believe that a New York hospital wouldn't have this. But... There are beds for stillborn children or stillborn babies. And those beds keep the body cold so that the families can have the babies in the room with them. But this hospital did not have one. And I watched them pack his bed with ice packs. (laughs) And that part is just so traumatic to me. I don't know why, but like that image just like stays with me you know we slowly like watched him decompose basically um because like I said his eyes were open in the beginning and then his body just got colder and colder and his face didn't look the same and it was just it was so hard like Steve did a really great job of trying to hold him and be happy He played him songs that he had planned on playing, like, as he was being born. Um, He was telling him stories that, you know, he wanted to pass on to him. And I just couldn't do it. Like, I have a lot of regrets about that time. And one of them is not, you know, being happier than that time. But I just couldn't. Um, I was just absolutely devastated and we had him in our room overnight and then that next morning 
you know, they basically kind of came in and said, um, you know, we really kind of need the room for other people. Um, so we left at eight that morning and having to leave your baby at a hospital and knowing that they're going down to a morgue where no one is going to hold them. It's just so dark. It made me have the worst panic attacks. I pretty much as soon as I got home, we knew we wanted to cremate CJ. And I found a funeral director and I harassed my doctor and that funeral director every day to speed up the process so that I could have CJ home with me because thinking of him being in the hospital just I just I couldn't think about it like I needed to have him home with me and the crematoriums were so busy during that time that it just made it such a longer process than it needed to be I think about that time and I know I was in shock, but there were things that my brain was doing knowing things, certain things had to be business as normal, right? Because whenever I called Steve and I called my mom and I told them about CJ, the next thing that I did, like I always think this is so weird, but I think it was just my brain being like, we have to function in some way as I immediately canceled like our Thanksgiving reservation that we had, which is just like, so why was that like my first thought? But it was almost like it just was going into overdrive because it knew what I was about to deal with was just too heavy. So it was like I could complete these checklists of things to avoid feeling what I was about to feel. My mom and my sister did come and stay with me for a little bit. Um, <laughs> that This isn't a funny story, but um, the day after I came home from the hospital, <laughs> one of my best friends I saw like outside and she was like, I have to give you a hug. So she gives me a hug. Um, and then like my mom was supposed to come up the next day, I think. And whenever my friend got home, she was like, I'm really sorry, I have to tell you this, but I just tested positive for COVID. And I'm like, what? Like, no, like my mom is supposed to come up. No, exactly. We we all, yeah, we all ended up being fine. But that time is such a blur for me because I really don't remember. Like the the hospital gave me sleeping pills and I pretty much just took those to stay asleep <laughs> so that I wouldn't have to deal with everything that I was feeling at that time. Pretty much the only reason I got out of bed those days was to walk Jackson, my dog, because <laughs> he was really the only thing keeping me going at that point. I asked Ashley if her husband Steve got any time off of work after their son passed away. Here's what she said. Whenever we left the hospital at 8 a.m., Steve got on the computer at 9.30 that morning to work. I'm sure that he could have had time off, but Steve's way of dealing with things at that point was to throw himself into his work. And I 
that doesn't make me angry, by the way. Like, because my dad died at a younger age, I feel like I always kind of knew that people dealt with grief in different ways. And I like to consent, not myself, an expert in grief by any means, but I... I was definitely the one who was not processing things very well at that point and didn't know what to do with myself or how to be functional at that point. And what I really wasn't prepared for is coming home and my body still thinking that I had a baby who was alive. So my milk coming in was just very distressing and very hard to deal with. Um, That pain was unbearable. Um, But I had wonderful friends who brought me, you know, milk pads to put in my bra or tea to drink um, to make, you know, my, my milk ducts clog or stop producing milk. Yeah. And um, like a cabbage cream that I could put on. Um, But yeah, I I really was not doing well. I don't know how I made it through that time. Um, it wasn't great. Uh, Chrissy Teigen, you know, had had a stillbirth a couple of weeks or days even before me. And I remember seeing those pictures and thinking, God, that must have been so hard. But whenever this happened with CJ, I knew that we had to have pictures with him. Then I, there are days when I can't remember my dad's face. And I, you know, I, I knew him for 24 years. I only got to see CJ for less than 24 hours. I wanted to remember every bit of his face so that I wouldn't forget. So we, we have a lot of pictures with him. The nurses were wonderful and Every time they came in, they would ask me, like, do you want pictures with him? Do you want me to take more? And I'm so glad that they did because Steve is awful at taking pictures. So as Ashley has a large social media and pop culture following, I was particularly curious how she decided to share the news of her son's death with her social media community and the Internet at large. Here's what she said. I knew I had to share something because people were very invested in my pregnancy um, because they were very excited for CJ. But a couple of days prior to that, um, I had actually been getting attacked by anti-vax trolls because one of my friends was promoting getting the flu shot. And I was like, yeah, I I got my flu shot like a month ago, whatever. And so people had been sending me for days that CJ was going to (laughs) die. And then for that to happen just felt especially cruel, especially because in no way was it related to getting the vaccine. I had gotten the vaccine weeks before that happened. Um, But I also wanted to make them feel like pieces of shit. Do you know what I mean? Like, those people say that with the intent to just scare people. (laughs) Yeah. But then I also had to be worried about them co-opting his story and turning it into a victory for them. And 
I think that was like the worst part about it. I, I loved getting support from everyone. And I know that people were so great at sending us gifts and things like that. But having to set up like a Google alert to make sure that people were using our names to scare people into not getting the flu vaccine and then eventually the COVID vaccine has just been like an added layer of trauma to this whole situation. I asked Ashley how she spends time with CJ, and I really, really wanted to know more about the work that she's doing to educate the world about stillbirth prevention. We talked about the park that she visits every day to spend time with him and her daughter Penny, and she shared how CJ's death has changed her as a human. We have like an altar basically dedicated to CJ that displays all of the gifts everyone gave us. Um like a box with the clothing that he wore um, and then his urn. And, you know, I say hi to that every single day. I slept with him beside my bed when I was pregnant with Penny. Um, Penny knows that that is her brother. (laughs) The first time that Penny ever actually rolled over, she was playing with his urn on the floor. And I actually have that on video. And I just think it's such a special moment. Um... We take him to special events. We take him to all holidays. Um, yeah, like we we try to include him as much as we can. Um, you know, when we sign cards, it's always like he is a member of our family as well because he is. Just because, yeah, just because he's physically not here doesn't mean that um, we don't think about him every day and that we don't include him in things. Um, but another thing I will say is, you know, I try to really make sure that his death is not in vain. And I, I use his story to educate people on stillbirth prevention. Um, because we know that there are a few things that you can do to improve your outcomes, um, in terms of preventing stillbirth. Uh, these are you know, tested techniques like uh, this happened in Iowa. They actually did a study with Count the Kicks and they reduced stillbirths by a fourth. Um, so I really have tried to educate my following on, you know, sleeping on your side, uh, doing fetal movement monitoring, Um, Some people call it counting kicks, but it's not necessarily that. That's just, you know, a a great kind of way to remember it. It's just seeing how much the baby is moving at a particular time of the day, particular time of the day, and then every day at that time, making sure that they're moving around the same. Um, That has really led to me doing a lot of work on these two bills that are currently going through Congress. One just actually passed the Senate and it's the Stillbirth Prevention Act, which by the way is a very bipartisan, uh, bicameral. It's not controversial at all. It doesn't add any money to the budget. It's literally just adding the word stillbirth to the Social Security Act that so states know that they can use uh, those Title V funds to do stillbirth education and stillbirth research. So 
that we're working on that bill. And then we're also working on um, the Shine for Autumn Act, which is sister legislation, basically, to the Stillbirth Prevention Act. It goes in and it does more. Like, it does, I think, $9 million over five years, which, by the way, is still not a lot of money when we're considering the budget. <laughs> um, but it helps us do more research. It helps collect better data um, on stillbirth. And hopefully, you know, these bills will go through. I have to say, like, I was feeling, like, really great about it. And then um, with it passing the Senate, still feeling really great about it. And then with everything that's going on in the House right now, it's just, it's demoralizing. <laughs> I I go to, um, it's a park by our house. It's called um, Lily Pond at Rockefeller Park. It looks like Central Park, though. <laughs> yes, it's an honorary bench. We we tried to get a plaque on it, but Battery Park City doesn't do memorials. So it's an honorary bench for him. Um, we try to take as many pictures as we can there, and Penny and I visit it every day. Um, there's just, you know, little ways that we try to keep CJ alive, and whether it's advocacy or having these little routines and traditions, um, it's all very important to me. I think women are scared to say that something is wrong. And also doctors are scared to scare pregnant women, right? So they don't want to bring up stillbirth because they don't want to put that idea in their heads. And in my, in my opinion, education is your best defense, right? Knowledge is power. So I don't want any of this to scare you. And that's always, I think what makes me feel the worst is I don't want to be, I don't want to scare people into like not following or not listening to what I'm saying because I'm too scary or I'm too much of a downer because that is what I feel like a lot. <laughs> I feel like a downer. Um, it, which is really hard for me because before all of this, I considered myself like a very fun person. Like I thought I was someone that like people like to invite to things or like, like to have around. And sometimes now I feel like someone that people want to keep at arm's length because I'm too depressing, <laughs> but that's fine. <laughs> When I asked Ashley what she would say to somebody who is currently experiencing infant loss, her words were so honest and so profound. Here's what she said. I don't even know if there's words that can make you feel better. You know, just know that I know what you're going through. Like, I always tell people, like, I died that day. Like, the person you see now is is not the same person. Um... But you, you can rebuild yourself into someone who is going to be more empathetic and more caring towards others because now you've experienced the worst loss that you could possibly imagine. And not that it makes you into a better person, but you you are changed in a way that I mean, it, it's it's transformative. Like, I I feel like I see everything through different eyes now. 
Thank you, Ashley, for all of the work you're doing to make this world a better place. And for sharing CJ with us all. We will remember him always. A Fresh Story is produced by Fresh Starts Registry. A heartfelt thank you to all of the women who share their stories in this special series. And a special thank you to Alex Mooney, who has been our special consultant for these episodes. If you are experiencing pregnancy or infant loss, we hope that these episodes helped you feel a little bit less alone. We love you, and we are holding you close.